everyone, and welcome to FADGAD. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by the Network for Feminist Approaches to Bioethics. And I'm your host, Catherine McKay. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer A.H. Bell. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Jennifer is a bioethicist at the University Health Network and Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. Um, she has assistant professor status at Dalalana School of Public Health and the Department of Psychiatry at U of T. And she's a member of University of Toronto's Joint Center for Bioethics. So you're involved in a lot of things across the university and the hospitals there. Yes, <laughs> thanks. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks for joining us. So we're talking about your paper from the latest uh, issue of IJFAB, which was focused on the philosophy and bioethics of Sue Sherwin. And Jennifer's paper is entitled Relational Autonomy as a Theoretical Lens for Qualitative Health Research. So I'm really excited to chat with you about this paper. This was something I don't do qualitative health research myself. And so it was really interesting to read um, your reflections on how Sue Sherwin's philosophy could inform and how specifically relational autonomy could inform um, the whole process of qualitative health research. Um, so I guess I wondered if you could give us a kind of overview summary of your paper. Hmm, sure. So I, I'll just back up a few steps to say that my, my training previously, so my undergraduate and my graduate training were in philosophy. So I was sort of steeped in the humanities uh, a while ago, and then did the shift in bioethics to empirical bioethics research for my doctorate. And, and so that's, that was sort of a momentous shift for me at the time. And, um, and the, the work of Susan Sherwin in relational autonomy was work that I was really impressed by and really loved uh, immersing myself in during my philosophical training. And mm -hmm. then when I made the shift over into empirical bioethics research, I, I was looking at ways to incorporate relational autonomy into primarily qualitative research, because that's really what I started out with. And, um, and so this essay was really, uh, you know, a long time coming, actually, it was probably about six years um, from the initial concept of writing this paper to actually, you know, having it published, mm -hmm. which um, it, it's a little, um, it's a little crazy to say that, but yeah, it was a long time. But in a nutshell, it's an essay that builds upon eight steps to conducting qualitative research from Creswell and Poth. And this is really a familiar reference guide in the field for qualitative researchers. And so I wanted to use something that people were familiar with, or at least could be accessible already. And I, I end up weaving relational autonomy considerations into each step of the research design. So identifying where it could influence certain decision points in research design. And and, and the purpose was to really create a guide for people like me that were sort of doing this shift. Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess that kind of explains some of the motivations behind writing it. You'd had it kind of on your mind for a while that you wanted to encourage more people to take up this kind of approach to, to incorporating a relational understanding of autonomy into the research design. 
you know, the the motivation and the sort of history of the development of the paper go a bit hand in hand, but it really was, the motivation really was to provide a structured approach to conduct qualitative research with a relational autonomy lens. And the motivation was to help, you know, people like me, bioethicists, I guess, that I happen to come from philosophical training, but I know that's certainly not every bioethicist. And in fact, it seems to be, at least in Canada, maybe a little bit more the norm now that some bioethicists have more of a practical background in, in an applied health science or so on. Or, or um, people are coming to bioethics with an already professional career behind them and they're coming anew. And so I really, the motivation includes writing this paper for them, mm-hmm. thinking about what I would have found helpful if I could do it over again and had some sort of mentorship through a paper and a guide to f- that I would find it useful. And so it really was to, to take this theory, which is really robust philosophically, and but you know, due to the nature of philosophy, it's not about necessarily applying theory to empirical research. So that that was never the scope of relational autonomy, and I, I you know, so somebody else had to do that, I think. Yeah. And I think people have been doing it across the board. Like, there's certainly people that have taken relational autonomy and used it in empirical research, but there hasn't been actually um, an article or a guide that articulates steps to do it. And I think I think it could be helpful. So I thought it was a natural next step. Yeah, yeah, that strikes me as right as well. So you use some of your own research to kind of give um, examples throughout this paper. And that was research that you did um, a little while ago. I think you mentioned in the paper that this was from, was this from your PhD? Yeah, exactly. So Yes, I used uh, the examples in my PhD as I worked through the process. You know, it was actually based on reading, Kathy Sharma's has a great book called Constructing Grounded Theory. Mm-hmm. And I personally found that book instrumental in, in learning grounded theory and how to do it because she provides very practical examples Mm-hmm. So much as in the analysis, she takes parts of her transcripts and highlights them and shows what the memos look like. And it's just it's very hands-on and it's very, um, you know, like nitty gritty. And so I modeled this essay a bit actually off of her work as well from the qualitative field, just so that people could see the messiness potentially in in doing this work and and find it hopefully helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. That was helpful for kind of illustrating where you would actually employ the theoretical stuff you were talking about to the actual topic that you're interested in studying. And I guess I was curious about, so I, like I said, don't really do um, qualitative work, but I rely on it because I think anybody who um, does applied ethics of any variety must be working with the real world. So having good quality, um, qualitative research from any of the social sciences or from bioethics itself is incredibly valuable. I was very curious about when you were thinking about relational autonomy um, in the setting of doing the qualitative research with the people that you were um, interviewing and chatting with, I was wondering whether 
or how you were able to discern whether a particular person's relationship with their support person was either supportive of their autonomy or was actually diminishing of their autonomy, or maybe it wasn't possible to gauge that. And I was just curious about how, you know, thinking in the context of relational autonomy, which pays so much attention to the quality of our relationships, how that would affect um, in, including, I guess, relational autonomy into your study design. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I actually struggled with that. I think, so, I mean, there's many ways to come up, to come at this question or this reflection. And um, I guess the first thing is that when you're actually in the interview and and you're, you're interviewing a patient or you're interviewing a patient and their partner or whoever else, or even if you're in a focus group, how do you, how do you distinguish when someone is acting or has the capacity for relational autonomy in those instances? And I think it's very hard because you're taking a time slice approach. I mean, you're there for 60 minutes, between 30 and 60 minutes. You're trying to, as a qualitative researcher, you're trying to develop rapport. You're trying to, you know, sort of develop some kind of relationship you can, as much as you can in the first five minutes before you go into some questions. And it might be obvious that, you know, if there's bullying, if there's overt coercion, that would be obvious instances where I would be, you know, certainly worried that somebody may be having their autonomy undermined by their situation or their, their relationships. And, and um, you know, if that were to occur, then that would, that would be pause for stopping the interview, perhaps, and having another discussion, maybe uh, just saying, you know, maybe we should interview you separately or, you know, that would certainly be time for a pause and mm -hmm. reflection, but usually it's not so obvious. And so how do you distinguish at that, at that level and, and whether the capacities are there according to say Sherwin's theory. And I don't, my own opinion is that I don't think you can. Mm. And in this, in the research that I did, which was, you know, interviews, and using a grounded theory and an interpretive description approach, which are certain methods to approaching qualitative data. I, I don't think I, I was there long enough. So somebody who's doing ethnography or somebody who's doing a case study where you're really getting into the, you, you could get into the culture, you could get into the historical development of that person's sense of self more, you have a relationship over time. I think people doing that kind of research would be better poised to really get a sense of whether someone's autonomy skills are being undermined or supported in their, the context of their relationships. And even in the context of the interviewee and participant relationship, there's just a lot more opportunity there to assess and to be involved and to you know, be supportive. Mm -hmm. um, but in the context of, of my study, there really wasn't that opportunity. So I really, um, I really can't say to what extent a lot of I have presumed that they were autonomous <laughs> more often than not because we, because of the circumstances of, of what they said to me and, and how their relationship appeared. Mm -hmm. But to, yeah, to answer your question, I think it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's so interesting. It's one of the perennial tricky things of relational autonomy. And that's not a problem with the, 
theory, to be clear. It reflects the complexity of our relationships and our, our sort of cognitive processes and our memories and our decision-making and our moral world, I think. It's interesting because I've read another, um, a colleague's work actually, and she was doing interviews and she had an interview with a couple and the man was going through some treatments and um, she found it very difficult to interview them because to interview him specifically because um, his wife would finish his sentences or he would finish hers. And it was kind of like interviewing one person, but there were actually two people in the room. And she found the interview completely unusable because he never said one complete thought. Um, he always just said a fragment and it was supplemented by his life partner, you know, this person who was, I guess, functionally speaking, a part of his brain. Hmm. Yeah, it's, you know what, I talk about that a little bit in, in the paper where I think, you know, qualitative research is, is certainly, it has a tradition, I think, of taking the individual speaker as representing their voice and their views. And I think relational autonomy applied in this field can actually enhance our ability to appreciate how that's not an, un, you know, that's not a difficulty necessarily for qualitative research. Um, like I'll hear patients say things like, well, this, you know, my spouse is my right arm or this person completes me and I wouldn't be here without this person. And so finishing someone's sentences is actually just a very bold instantiation, I think, of relationally uh, or contextual selves. And I think relational autonomy in the right instances where these are autonomy supportive relationships, we can see this data as giving us authentic information from a person's perspective that just happens to be intertwined with another person. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps there's room for relational autonomy to break open some of those traditions in qualitative research to help other qualitative researchers ask, well, you know, is this really a detriment to the data Can I that I cannot discern for certain whose voice it is? Mm -hmm. um, and we might ask, well, is that really, is that an appropriate question? Is that, is that a relevant question? So mm -hmm. I think it, there's a lot of advantages, not just from bringing the philosophical theory of relational autonomy into qualitative research, but from qualitative research side of things, um, really thinking about how we get data and how we design the research studies and what this theory can mean for broadening the scope of qualitative research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so not just, so the essay is very much focused, I think, in part on changing practice using theoretical understandings and concepts um, to inform research design to change practice, but I think also inherent to research design, relational autonomy can help qualitative researchers understand, and other researchers hopefully too, but to understand that there's different ways um, and knowledge derivations that, um, you know, of course, this has been said by feminists for eons, but it's another way of saying it again <laughs> about the value of our certain understandings about how we get data and how we interpret data and so on. Yeah, absolutely. A big part of your current work life is being a clinical bioethicist at Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. And I guess I, I was really curious about how um, the work that you've done on this project, the work that you've done as a researcher um, and as a philosopher, 
um, how that's shaped the way that you operate as a clinical ethicist? Yeah, you know what, that's such a great question too, because I think maybe the main word to summarize it is it's humbled me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just in the sense of, you know, philosophically, there are these issues or problems that relational autonomy is supposed to fix or solve or, or allow us to see in a different way. And I think relational autonomy theory does a very good job, although, you know, there's new discussions about the direction of relational autonomy. But, um, you know, when it when Sue Sherwin first sort of started talking about it and introducing it, um, I think she made a great argument for it. And it's still, I teach relational autonomy in one of my theoretical foundations in bioethics class. And, you know, usually it's very well received and people really like thinking about the contextual nature of of selves. But um, so where relational autonomy, I think philosophically, we can see that it has advantages and nuances that makes sense or there's argument behind and we would take them for granted perhaps now when you go into clinic um, and I think Carolyn Ells wrote a paper with Matt Hunt several years ago just about how relational autonomy is not actually it's not used in the clinical setting and I think Mm. that that is still true today even though people really appreciate the theory I think they can get behind it there's Mm. still some very practical barriers to enacting or supporting people's relational autonomy in clinical practice one of the difficulties facing relational autonomy theory today, and I and I know that you know there's there's great people talking about about this already, and I think you'll be interviewing some of them. But <laughs> it's it's just that when you're confronted with a patient, let's say an adult patient who is refusing the recommended treatment, and you discuss with that patient why, it becomes clear that she's being influenced by her father's belief, and and she's sort of you worry that she's being unduly pressured by her father. And then in the healthcare team, they offer psychosocial support, they offer you know more information, uh, but still it doesn't change this adult patient's mind and you're still worried about the influence of her father on her decision-making. What are your options at that point? Unfortunately, your option usually is either to accept her autonomous wishes, which you're really concerned about and which means she's going to... Um, say no to the recommended treatment and potentially die. Um, or you're going to say, uh, actually, you don't seem to be exhibiting autonomy because you're being unduly pressured by your father's beliefs. Uh, and so what does this mean? We're going to actually look to your substitute decision maker to make a decision. So forget your autonomy altogether. We're going right over to your your substitute. So this is, this is a problem. You know, it's, and I know it's a, you know, relational autonomy theorists talk about this problem, but practically speaking, it's very hard to solve in the moment because you have the urgency of the treatment decision that's needing to be made. You have a life or death scenario, uh, potentially, and um, you don't have as many resources and patients may choose not to take on those resources. So you have kind of this maelstrom of complexity and difficulty with no real resolution. So it's difficult to enact relational autonomy in the healthcare setting. And I think, or I hope that by doing research in using relational autonomy as a lens that might provide some more creative solutions to the problem, or maybe the relational theory needs to, needs to address this in more meaningful ways and, and maybe see this as a real barrier to, to enacting relational autonomy in clinical practice. 
Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. But it's so interesting just to think about how big the gap can be sometimes between academic ethics, I guess, and then clinical ethics, even when you're trying to do really good and attentive and practical applied ethics. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting to reflect yeah. on. It's, it's strange because, you know, we all know what to do, right? The mm. theory, you know, the theory sort of says if what skills are necessary and how you might support them. But if, if, if that person is refusing that support or, you know, all the complexities I just talked about, then yeah. you're, you're sort of stuck. Yeah, we end up with liberal autonomy after all. <laughs> That's right. That's, That's fascinating. Um, is there anything uh, that you'd like to say kind of as a, as a final wrap up that you'd like people to um, take away from your paper? Yeah, well, um, thank you, first of all, just for the opportunity to, to chat about this. It's, I, I do love chatting about it. And um, it's not every day that I get invited to a podcast. <laughs> um, I guess I hope I hope people take away from the essay that that there is a way people that want to to design research studies, uh, empirical research studies, that there is a way to take a very comprehensive and I'll say difficult philosophical theory of relational autonomy and apply it to empirical health research. Mm -hmm. So I hope people take away the question prompts in the guide. I hope they find it helpful to work through their own thinking and research decisions about how they would like to incorporate relational autonomy. I don't specify which theory of relational autonomy is best. I do use Susan Sherwin's and I do think it's a great theory and I feel like her arguments uh, stand up, but obviously there are others and and there's many great articles coming out and one just published in IJ Fab as well with from Daniel Wenner. And so I, you know, I leave it up to the reader really to determine for themselves what relational autonomy theory they they would prefer and the level at which they want to apply it. So, you know, I say in the in the article too, it's not just for qualitative research. It, I think that this could also be applied to quantitative research. Um, you know, it might be the difference between a sort of thin and thick description, what we talk about in qualitative research. Um, and I don't know whether any way of applying it is better or worse. I think that it's probably all, it's all good. It's all a step forward to just think about these things in, in this way, research in this way. Um, but I do hope that, that people build on this, on this work and that, uh, you know, the time is ripe for empirical bioethics. We're having a bit of a heyday. Mm -hmm. And also our larger society is confronting racism and systemic discrimination. So I think it's an opportunity to think about how employing a relational autonomy lens to guide research to change practice can really support our broader societal goals of equity, inclusion, social justice, and diversity. And uh, I do think that the commentaries in the edition on my paper uh, which were great and very thoughtful, have highlighted additional considerations that are important for moving empirical bioethics or health research forward with this lens. Great. I hope so, too. So, that sounds very exciting. Uh, well, thank you so for, for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me, Jen. This was a really excellent chat. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of FabGab. If you'd like to find more of our episodes, you can find us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
and wherever else you find your podcasts of quality. Thanks for listening. Bye.